Welcome to Emory Innovators, a series of conversations between the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, and Emory alumni who are innovation leaders or entrepreneurs, or have taken innovative approaches to designing their careers and disrupting their industries. Today, we're excited to welcome our first alumnus guest to the show. Chris Helm is a graduate of Emory University's Goizueta Business School, where he did a BBA in 2010, and a partner in Kinetic Ventures, where he serves as the Chicago office lead and head of data. Chris ran his short-focused prop trading firm out of the Kinetic office for three years until his wife decided he should lower <laughs> his blood pressure and, uh, by investing in startups instead. Prior to trading, Chris worked in various data analytics roles, creating and selling custom analytic solutions. In his latest data role, Chris stood up a data practice for an e-commerce specific consulting company. So we're really gonna dig into Chris's work at Kinetic Ventures later in the show and discuss why Kinetic is such a disruptive force in VC. But we'd like to start this discussion today, um, Chris, of your innovator's journey much earlier. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about your time at Emory. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me, Shannon. Uh, so I started in uh, 2006, and I always had, uh, Emory was my top school. I always had a, a clear vision of where I wanted to go, and um, it was primarily because I grew up in the South. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee and wanted a small, uh, good private school. And Emory is always at the top of every list. Um, so I wanted that you know, Ivy League type education, but uh, in a kind of more casual uh, Southern setting. And so Emory was always my top choice and was happy when I got in. Um, the business school was also something that uh, I knew I wanted to go to. So I had a pretty clear kind of path of why and kind of how at Emory. Uh, mm -hmm. I was also going to walk on the golf team uh, and played for a little while. And that ended up being too large of a time commitment uh, for me. And so I ended up joining Greek Life instead, uh, which was not something on my radar and uh, definitely shaped I think, you know, who I am and uh, it was having moved around. So I moved 13 times before I was 18 and was always kind of transient and uh, lived in a lot of different places, never had a really large friend group. And so I think uh, something very cool at Emory was the Greek life and having, you know, 50 to 60 instant friends and uh, all very career and education driven. Uh, so that, uh, I think that was mainly what shaped my time in Emory that uh, was not kind of on my radar uh, heading into it. Hmm. Uh, well, so the Greek life piece may be related to our second question we tend to ask. So would you characterize your student as deeply immersed in your field of study, deeply interested in professional endeavor beyond academia or maybe somewhere in between? Or was it a little more focused on other aspects of the student experience? <laughs> Uh, it was probably somewhere in between. I, uh, yeah, I, I was, I don't know, I, I enjoyed every class in the business school. I even, I remember business law was something, uh, I wasn't, I was dreading and even classes that weren't, I was a finance, a concentration in finance. And so I was 
always wanted to go down a financial path, but uh, every class I took, at least in the business school, was is so engaging and fun for me that uh, I did put a pretty good focus on uh, academics and but there was definitely, yeah, a lot of fun time with friends. I, I never really thought about career or wasn't really building anything while I was at school. And that's something that looking back on, I kind of regret. Uh, it's a very cool part. I got my MBA uh, from University of Cincinnati. And I, I was preparing for this. I was just thinking back to Emory and all of my classmates. And almost everyone I was with in the business school has started a company or works for a venture fund or private equity. Uh, everyone that goes there seems to be very entrepreneurial. And that was something not to uh, you know, speak ill of Cincinnati, but I didn't get that same, uh, I don't mm the quality and at least in terms of entrepreneurial spirit and uh, being a risk taker wasn't there. And so I kind of wish looking back that I would have tried to create something uh, with all these friends and classmates because the talent was so good and everyone really wanted to create something unique. And, uh, every time I look on LinkedIn, I'm always surprised what uh, someone I hadn't connected with since school is doing. So I do wish I had leaned more and tried to be a little more entrepreneurial early on at Emory. Um, it's an interesting point, and it's something that is uh, that I find really striking about the student body at this school. Um, you know, starting up the center, I was not prepared for the number of stories we would hear uh, from students about ventures they'd already launched, even in high school. Mm -hmm. uh, we have people who routinely come in who have, you know, launched four or five things before they, you know, hit Emory. And uh, that does seem to be a, an unusual characteristic of this place. But it does lead to the next question, because despite not doing that in school, you successfully, successfully transitioned um, into professional life and uh, have taken an entrepreneurial path in many ways. So. I'm wondering if, uh, you know, how you went about managing that transition. We hear from students often that even those who are very entrepreneurial and who have been involved in many different uh, initiatives or even ventures tend to state that they are apprehensive about that moment of transition, right? When they yeah. go from applying what they've learned as students to uh, uh, flexing those skills as professionals. So, you know, I'd love to hear about that transitional moment and if you had any difficulty in translating what you learned from your studies and your extracurriculars to the professional world. Yeah, that's a good question. I was fortunate, so I, I think after, what, after my sophomore year, I interned at Dunhumby, which was uh, the world's largest data analytics company. That uh, We managed loyalty cards for over a billion people across the world. Wow. And I, just loved uh, the culture as a UK-based company. It's so super casual. I have a casual uh, kind of personality and style, and the work was amazing. And so I interned there uh, after sophomore year, after junior year, and uh, I so I knew where I was going to work after school, and I knew the culture, I knew the work, and so I was fortunate knowing exactly what I was getting into. Uh, it would have been there was a moment just since I was a finance. Uh, concentration finance I thought about investment banking and went to Charlotte for a series of interviews at Wells Fargo um, and a few other 
investment banks and just the culture uh, it was it just wasn't a fit for me and so i'm i'm really happy i didn't go down that path it just it wasn't going to work out long term and so i think i, I don't think many students think about culture as much as they should and so i think as long as you're uh, everyone kind of knows what industry they want to get into but not as much what type of people and corporate environment you want to be around. So I would prioritize that more than anything. I think that would help the transition a lot. Uh, and that's just, I was fortunate to kind of fall into it when I was a sophomore. Uh, but I know lots of my friends, you know, they just wanted to be a lawyer, didn't even think about what the culture around certain law firms was. And even within that industry, it's drastically different. So I think the more you can mesh who you are personally with uh, the cult cultural values and uh, good management styles uh, would be super helpful. Uh, I mean, that that's an interesting point. So many people, uh, well, first of all, this is a very driven student body, right? Mm -hmm. So many of them come here uh, with a plan for, you know, career and they work towards that from the beginning. And so uh, if the focus is uh, on the job as opposed to the, the kind of bigger fit for you as a working professional, mm -hmm. it can certainly guide things in a certain direction. And uh, the, those, those intangibles might not be on a lot of people's radar. Yeah. Crucial to your point. Um, we've all been, most of us have been in a place that wasn't a fit and we know the difference. Yeah, and it's even, I think if I was recommending anything and when you think about internships, you know, do something very formal uh, in the industry that you're, so for me, it would have been, maybe I should have done investment bank, uh, banking as a intern, and then something completely different, maybe a you know, completely remote technology company, just to get a feeling of you know, what is, what works, what doesn't, uh, how much do you really want to interact with people? Cause they're you know, very focused, analytical roles where that's not part of your job or there's completely team-driven roles. But I think testing out not only culture, but also how you like to work uh, would be helpful. And kind of that's what internships, I think, should be for. That's interesting. And it's also helpful in a pandemic because, you know, <laughs> yeah. every day, you yes. can see any of those. Well, and it's, you can't be super picky right now. So yeah. I think that's, yeah. uh, that's also a caveat. Um, so those were sort of the very earliest days. You stepped from uh, an internship you'd done into a position with that same company, uh, but at some point you you made a, a pivot, right? And so I'd love to talk about your transition into uh, being an entrepreneur and then now uh, working in the VC space. So how did that transition happen? Yeah, even though I really I loved the company I was working for, it wasn't fulfilling. Uh, I just always wanted to create and do something. And uh, I, I kind of dabbled a lot before getting into hedge fund trading. Uh, I think in my earliest years, I used travel as my entrepreneurial uh, journey. My wife and I started a travel blog community and uh, we went to 50 countries in four years and built a kind of fun little community and you know getting some free comps traveling so that was my first like business you could say but i i knew you know when i was 40 i didn't want to be 
doing that still. And so I played around. I was like, what in finance can I do while I'm still working? And I was trading a little bit in school. And then kind of at nights, I started building uh, predictive models and really trying to get a, can you create an automated trading process that you know, wasn't as stressful as picking stocks. Uh, so I started doing it at night and then, you know, finally got to a point, I think four months later where I had a model of some accuracy and thought I could make this a profession. And so that was, it wasn't an overnight thing. And that's, I think the people that do it the best are ones that you know, have a, a strong base, whether that's financial, like uh, some sort of job, and then, you know, start building whatever company or idea you want. I wouldn't recommend just jumping into anything without validating, uh, especially if you're in a relationship, <laughs> which can be very yeah. stressful. Uh, and so, yeah, it, my job just wasn't it wasn't fulfilling that. I, I the corporate ladder and always like, trying to do things for promotions wasn't uh, just wasn't something I wanted to do. And so that that got me into trading, and then I did that for three years and uh, was renting office space from Kinetic. And then and I'm sure we'll get into this later, but they wanted to build some sort of quantitative model to predict startup success, uh, which was exactly what I was doing for stocks. And so it was a perfect timing. Uh, one of my friends was a partner. And so we knew each other and it's just kind of right place, right time, how I got into venture capital, but I probably would have stuck with, uh, stocks had it not just been for the timing of it uh the right place right time uh is something we hear a lot uh with entrepreneurs in in particular mm -hmm. uh, because there are so many good ideas out there and there are so many people who execute well uh, and there is always a factor of kismet that kind of plays into uh, finding that thing that's the right fit yeah, uh, you know whether that's uh, product market fit or personal fit uh, for career transition, it seems. Um, and I can also validate the piece about you know uh, you know being married and making dramatic career transition. <laughs> I remember how well after finishing my PhD and teaching uh, for like two years in French and Italian literature, the conversation went when I said, you know, I think I I really want to uh, work in uh, American film history. So, uh, and I want to be a book editor. So can we just quit everything we build and uh, we'll take a chance on maybe getting a job at Turner Classic Movies. So there was a period in between of painting houses. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, it generally works out to some degree, but uh, there's always a few stressful months, definitely. Yeah, yep, yeah. I and mean, it's always good to have a skill, but that, that's my you know, key piece. Yes. We can fall back on. So. Um, let's talk a bit then about sort of as you made that that uh, transition and went over to Kinetic, what your work at Kinetic looks like today. So what what is your focus and what makes your work in this space innovative? Yeah, so my work uh, today, well, I guess, so my work last year was, uh, as I mentioned, we wanted to build a quantitative model to predict startup success and so how we did that we ended up building software that automates the due diligence process so instead of having a company pitch us uh, like before we built this a company would come into our office uh, actually this room and you know, would pitch the three of us and one day we were just like this is the most 
ineffective, uh, just silly like, thing we've, we've ever done. Because we, you know, we're limited, we're in Northern Kentucky and it is not a hotbed for innovation uh, at all. And so we were just having local companies come in and uh, that's kind of what kind of f the fueled the idea of creating software. And so for about two years, we, we built the software uh, internally and recently spun that into its own company. Uh, we can talk about the software itself, but uh, it essentially just automates the process and then recommend, recommends investments to myself or my colleagues. And so most of my time, now that we've spun that into its own company, I'm no longer working on the, the software piece. And so my day-to-day -day is really uh, interacting with companies that Wendell, our software recommends and conducting final human diligence. And so that's you know, requesting pro formas and pieces of insurance, looking at cap tables, really figuring out if this is a good investment for us. And so I, my job is just like any venture capitalist job. It's a lot of networking, conducting due diligence, finding investments. But where we differ is I only spend time with the 10% of companies that Wendell recommends. Like we, mm -hmm. we weed out 90% of companies that we would have no chance of funding. There might be one or two and you know, 200 that we might've missed, but our time is so much more efficient and effective because we're working with a pool where we're likely to write a check. And so the job is really not too dissimilar from any other venture capitalist job. It's just uh, we spend, I think, more human time per company uh, instead of, you know, just looking through decks and having intro calls. Mm -hmm. um, what that sort of probably doesn't fully explain is what's so innovative about Wendell. And yep. so you can say that, okay, now your day looks like typical VC, but that really, you know, short sells the, the, the sale uh, or the, the tale of, you know, what makes this tool so unique and also what it's doing to disrupt the industry. So I wonder if you can tell us more about, you know, kind of what went into building Wendell and what Wendell does that's so different. Yeah, definitely. I love talking about this. So it's great. Uh, so Wendell is, it's, it's a, the easiest way to describe it, it's a machine learning uh, quantitative platform. So think of it as a super sophisticated survey monkey type form, anything else like in, ingest data. Uh, so we go, we create different pathways that we want companies to complete. So one of which is a company overview section where we ask companies you know, their monthly recurring revenue, uh, their corporate structure, what their expenses are, some basics on the company. So we you know, get an idea if it's the right stage for us. Uh, and then once people fill out the full application, uh, companies get a total score and composite rating. And then uh, we train our model on good deals versus bad deals. And so it's a binary type training, but essentially Wendell self learns and then it uh, starts picking winners based on the outcomes. So let's say uh, Uber went through it 10 years ago and Uber you know, IPOs for 60 billion. Uh, Wendell automatically recognizes that and reweights its algorithms based on you know, Uber's inputs from years ago. And so it, it self-learns everything that it ingests based on ultimate startup outcomes. And then the other cool part about Wendell, it's the platform, but we're also building software that sits on top of the platform that helps with due diligence. Um, 
to Shannon, I think that what we talked about that was most interesting to you, uh, we created a behavioral assessment called Startup DNA that uh, is based on similar research as DISC, Myers-Briggs, and other assessments. But what ours does is it analyzes role fit of entrepreneurs. And so we have each executive role go through the assessment. And uh, there's 22 potential profiles you can be in our assessment. Uh, and we back tested against lots of startup outcomes and found that people are hardwired to be certain roles. So people are hardwired to either be a CEO, a salesperson, CTO. So we're using this assessment to analyze the team and overall team composition, which I don't think anyone's ever applied behavioral science to who you should be in an organization, especially early stage when there are two to four employees. And so we're really looking for, is this company good based on Wendell, all this data we're ingesting, but also is the team likely going to be a winner just based on who they are uh, just naturally? Mm -hmm. Even myself, my profile, once we started back testing and knowing you know, who people should be, uh, I am a really good operator and so I'm a problem solver in our assessment. The kind of a fringe CEO profile, like you can make it as a CEO, but it's not natural to you. Uh, I'm not quite as proactive as a natural born CEO. And so I'm really good in a COO or a CTO type type role. And so even for me, it was so validating. I've kind of spun up these businesses and never really taken it to the next level. Yeah. There's just a huge psychological difference from creating a business to scaling a business to a hundred million, $500 million company. Yeah. And so we're really looking for uh, good companies, but also great teams. Huh. Uh, so I actually went to the assessment and it told me that I'm a great short order cook. So if, you're, <laughs> if you guys are hungry and you're hiring, just keep me in mind. Um, no, obviously not one of the choices, but it is a fascinating tool. One of the things though, that I was also really struck by when we had an initial conversation about the uh, both the window and then these layers that you kind of put on top to, to do various sorts of work mm -hmm. um, is, is the question of outcomes and what it's changed in terms of your portfolio mm -hmm. and in terms of the mix of businesses that are getting through initial assessments. So I wonder if you could say a few words about that. Yeah, so there are a couple things here that we that happened that we, we didn't know would just based on the process and one of which is uh, discrimination or biases people have uh, just inherently. Uh, and so Wendell has proven uh, we validated uh, roughly 45% of people that go through it have a woman or a minority CEO. Uh, and Wendell recommends uh, 44 to 46%, almost well, the identical number of people going through it. And we end up investing about 43% of our companies have a woman or minority CEO. So we invest at very similar levels. And when you compare that to the venture average, depending on what publication you read, it's somewhere between four and 8% of a typical venture portfolio has a female or minority founder, CEO founder. And so yeah, this was something that we didn't expect. And it's just a super I mean, great outcome. But, uh, and then I looked back before Wendell, I think the first four companies I invested in all had 30 year old white male CEOs. And so there's just something in this process of you know, pitching, you relate to someone that looks and acts like you, 
so the typical VC process of here's my pitch deck, let's hop on a call. Uh, do we build a like, do we build rapport on that call? Kind of goes a long way to determining whether the investment happens. Uh, so that's one part of it that's super fascinating, and we're working with some PhDs from TCU and Belmont on under like diving into that deeper and uh, publishing a white paper on can data remove bias in private markets. And then the other interesting thing that Wendell does is it makes our portfolio, uh, it finds investments that lots of other venture funds wouldn't do. So like the best one that comes to mind is a company called Cuddle Clones and they make uh, replicas of your pets, like the exact same shape, size. I actually uh, have one over there that I can pull, uh, pull in. But it's, you know, at first glance, it's a silly business idea. Uh, they make club bed covers, actual stuffed uh, clones, slippers. Uh, when we invested, they were doing, I think, 500,000 annual revenue uh, two years ago. This year, they're going to do over 15 million uh, this year. They own, uh, ended up building, owning their own factory, whole supply chain. Uh, this female founder, she's just amazing. But I passed the deck to all my VC friends and they didn't even look at it. So Wendell's really just looking for, okay, are the financials good? Is this price fair? And is this team great? And she's a perfect founder and you know, has, has just proven that there's, there's something deeper than just the initial business idea. And so, and that's happened a couple of times. So I'd say our portfolio is very unique. You know, it's not just software. Uh, it, it brings certain companies like Cuddle Clones that a typical venture fund would never even look at. It's interesting. Um, you know, considering I have a dog I love that ends up in the emergency room just about every week, uh, mm -hmm. I, should <laughs> I, may, I may need a clone. That might be the safer path to long-term pet ownership. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, the next question that I want to ask, I, I think there's a lot in your last answer that would already speak to this, but um, I'm always curious if there's one thing uh, that the guest has innovated recently that they're especially proud of. So in your case, is there something you would point to that you've done recently, uh, you know, that you've really changed or found a new solution to innovated in some way that you're really proud of? Yeah, it'll be a little bit of a duplicate, but we had Wendell and that was a big milestone for us having a self-learning platform that you know, picks investments. Uh, so we had that about two, two years ago and then about six months in, we, we were collecting financial data, data on the company, but had no way of assessing the team. And every venture capital fund says teams, all that matters. Uh, I think there's a study, 90% of venture capital funds think team is the number one factor in success, but no one's actually analyzing it. Uh, so about a year and a half ago, that or a year ago, that was, you know, we set out to create a piece of software that analyzes the team. And so that was something I created. Uh, there's this open source uh, research done from the 60s that a lot of assessments are built off of. And so I took that uh, and it took about six to eight months, but created the MVP for our behavioral assessment. From there, we've worked with industrial psychologists on refining and making it better but that was something it was a eight month project that i created from scratch that 
is now part of Wendell and probably the most valuable part that we've sold to PNG and other corporations. It's not just funds using this platform, it's you know, anyone that's looking to analyze something uh, as well as build high-performing teams uh, are starting to use our solution. So that was, you know, and everything we've done, the definitely coolest and uh, most unique thing that I've ever built personally. So it really opened up an entirely new line of business for you. You were initially using it as an assessment tool for where you were investing in, but it became its own. Is it a licensed software or how does that work? Yep. Yeah, so right now, Startup DNA, which I think we're going to change to Behavior Box, is uh, sold with Wendell. But we've had lots of requests that I, I just want to, I want you to create a standalone solution that builds teams, provides automatic recommendations on you know, components of the team I'm missing. And so we're really leaning in. We're building all of that in the background now that we have the assessment is, you know, maybe you put some inputs in there. Uh, maybe four team members, we tell you your next three hires, or you have four candidates for this role, we'll pick the number one candidate. And so that's currently, it's still sitting within Wendell and Wendell's uh, licensed software, but we're definitely exploring spinning that out to its own entity as well, just because there's way more applicability outside of venture capital, private equity. Wendell was built to analyze companies this was just kind of an interesting byproduct of building that. Huh. Interesting that the byproduct would find the much bigger market. But that's <laughs> yeah. where these things happen. That's generally how it happens, I think. Yeah. It's called uh, the pivot. So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so one thing that uh, you know innovators and entrepreneurs often have to innovate is their own career path. So we've all heard the numbers that as many as 90% of startups fail. Uh, the average tenure for a chief innovation officer is less than two years, and I now believe it's less than 18 months. Right. Um, so success and innovation is, in large part, the result of continuous professional design. Um, so, uh, you know, you just shared one powerful example of how you did something that helped your career. But I'm wondering if you have any stories of a time when you actually consciously applied innovation best practices to designing your career or improving your outcomes professionally? Or has it been more in kind of the entrepreneurial spirit where you came across the idea that drove things forward? Yeah, that's, I don't think it's ever been a conscious decision. Yeah, I've had, uh, we've had interns over the years, they've asked me similar questions. I think in your 20s, it's all about obtaining a unique skill set. And so you know, for me, it wasn't conscious, but it ended up being um, trading for predictive analytics with you know, data analytics and uh, data science background. Then like, okay, this venture capital opportunity came up, this fund was trying to build this exact same thing. And so I always advise people, you know, it's think about it like you know you you are a resume of sorts and there's always going to be a unique job opportunity that no one's really you know perfectly designed for and i think those things just come naturally so i just think you know 20s is all about experimenting getting unique experience and it doesn't have to be job hopping which i know is super popular right now but it's maybe you take six months and learn a certain skill uh 
maybe you learn Python or R, certain programming languages. Maybe then the next six months you learn uh, statistical analysis. Uh, maybe the next six months it's machine learning, random forest, uh, different things. Because there's just, I think building your unique skill set, unique experience is so important that opportunities present themselves a lot more if you have that. And so I think that was something that happened you know, unconsciously for me, but I've seen happen to lots of people that in their spare time are just doing things that are like, oh, that would, that would kind of be fun to do, but I just don't have the drive to do that. Mm -hmm. and so that's how I think about it. Uh, and it's almost like now that I'm, you know, I love my job, I'm a partner here, but working on this behavioral science thing, you know, does that turn into a future job, executive startup coaching or uh, recruiting firm. I don't know. I, I think that's that's now an interesting component to my repertoire and skill set is behavioral science for some strange reason. Uh, and that was not, you know, I, I didn't set out to create that, but that was a byproduct of innovating and kind of creating a solution that didn't exist. So I'd always look for opportunities to do something a little silly. Uh, but that people would be like, oh, that's super cool. I might need that at my company. Interesting. Uh, well, I definitely want to leave some time for the audience to ask questions too. So I'm going to just wrap up with one more question, which is, uh, you know, beyond the great work that you're doing at Kinetic, that, that's making a real difference uh, in this space, uh, what problem do you most want to solve? Or how do you want to make the world a better place? This will be a, another venture-centric question, but yeah, everything we're doing is building towards uh, automating investing at the earliest stages possible. And so there's this huge gap, like the venture capital you hear about is late stage venture capital. It's Sequoia, Benchmark, it's you know Uber and Lyft and Airbnb, uh, but those ideas were created somewhere and they are often in warehouses and uh, universities, accelerators, and there's really no institutional funding at that stage. All companies are started via friends and family. Uh, then that's angel investors. And then it's, you know, some funds like ours that write smaller checks and, but there's no big player in the ideation stage. And so, you know, I would love our software and everything we're working on to move as early as possible and write you know, $250,000 checks to the greatest teams, the greatest entrepreneurs to build their businesses. Because I forget the exact numbers, but the earlier you go, the longer it takes to fundraise. Sure. And, you know, even we went through an 18 month fundraise for our fund. So I get the pains of fundraising and they're very real. So if an entrepreneur is fundraising for eight months, you know, if we can eliminate all of that and yeah. and give them money, that's the accelerate the pace of acceleration will be amazing. And so I think that's that's the biggest problem. And it would be super fun to be you know the lead VC in the like friends and family space. Right. All right. Uh, well, that's sort of the last of the official questions. I'd love to turn this open to the audience and uh, you can just put uh, questions in chat. Um, and so I will keep an eye there. 
um, please go ahead and contribute. I am curious about one thing you said, Chris, which is this moving 13 times in 18 years. So yeah. I'm not going to ask you about the witness protection program. Uh, that's it. I think that was on the do not. <laughs> um, but I am curious about, um, you know, whether and how that might have shaped uh, your entrepreneurial thinking. Uh, in my experience, as somebody who moved a fair amount, but has also lived overseas quite a few times, there is a sort of perception you develop for human problems if you're having to be really attuned to uh, new cultural settings all the time. Uh, and I wonder if you think that may have played in in some way. Yeah, Greg, I, I think absolutely. Uh, my dad had... The reason he moved was he just didn't play nice with others and was always uh, quitting or getting fired. Uh, so, <laughs> but he did, uh, he, we lived down in Silicon Valley for three years and he did you know, three startups and ended up being the CIO for eBay for a short stint. Uh -huh. So, you know, that's kind of in our family, but yeah, it's, for me, the, the thought of, for a lot of people, the thought of packing and moving, selling, like there's just so much, so many logistics involved that it is so terrifying. It's almost the same as leaving your job, I think. And so the more, when I quit my prior job, it was, I just woke up one day, I was like, this is gonna happen today. And so I'm very uh, okay with change, like abrupt change. And I, I think that's, that is probably a, a common trait among a lot of entrepreneurs. They, yeah once they decide something's going to happen, it happens. There isn't you know, the, the drawn out process, uh, the formality of it. And I also just like yeah, my wife and I had never lived anywhere longer than I think 18 months. It's like a it's set date that I just love change. And I think this, the same for work too. Uh, it's just something I, I really enjoy. Interesting. Uh, so a question came in in the audience, which is, do you foresee more VCs moving towards this machine learning data centric approach? What other industries do you think could benefit from working with a tool like Wendell? Uh, I think absolutely not to the first question. <laughs> and this, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. It's always fun to talk about. What do you think about venture capital funds? When people are running them, they either you know, made hundreds of millions typically through the sale of their company, super successful entrepreneurs, uh, generally ego comes with that. And they think they built this business, they can identify the next great business. Or you have people that kind of work through a VC and all they talk about is, well, I invested in Twitter, I invested. So there's this like, really crazy mindset of picking and needing to be validated. And, Everyone we talk, every VC, uh, at least every VC that's you know over 50 million. Um, there's a different like world going on in micro VCs that I think absolutely this model will catch on. Uh, there just isn't software. I mean, Wendell ideally is it, but there isn't software to help. And when you're running a small VC, the economics aren't great. Uh, like we're all making minimum wage, uh, and you know, you're really tied to the upside in the fund. Mm -hmm. And so you just don't have bandwidth and or really money to develop software to solve your own needs. And that's something, it was a painful process for us and we just couldn't keep doing it internally and then, you know, spun out to its own company and raised the money. So I think those two dynamics, I don't think this will catch on in late stage, 
but I do think, yeah, it'll, it'll continue to evolve within early stage companies or early stage funds. Mm -hmm. I think there's one, there's a second part to that question. Yeah. So other industries that you think might really benefit from working with a tool like Gwindle? Anything where you're trying to assess risk, I think it will lend its like it will do well in. So even insurance, uh, private equity, pretty like that's pretty similar to venture capital. But anything where you're investing in people or in companies that have an uncertain outcome is, mm -hmm. is kind of how I think about it. And we're talking with a local insurance provider. Can you add a layer of behavioral science to writing loans? Uh, and I know it's kind of come back to behavioral, but there's also a lot of financials that we're modeling off of. But that's, there are already tools like that that exist. We invested in a company called Coral in Canada and they automate the whole loan process. And there's a strictly financials quantitative, uh, there's some amazing solutions in that space. Mm -hmm. And so we're not really trying to recreate that, but I think our you know, secret sauce is layering that with the human component into it. Uh, so another great question has come in. Uh, I was wondering if you could take a look at your behavioral data backwards for a moment. Uh, I think a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs uh, would like to know what skills, mindsets, habits they should cultivate to become the best CEO of their own startup. Do you see any patterns jumping out of the data? So that's an interesting question. You know, you talked yeah. about hardwiring, I think is mm -hmm. the term you use, but there is a, a possibility you could decide to acquire and, uh, you know, build those skills. So it's an interesting question. Yeah, very interesting. We, so there's, it's interesting there, assessments are more accurate for older. Um, I think the, the exact age in the literature and something that we've discovered is about 26. Uh, is when people kind of hardwire who they are. So there is a lot growing up that you can definitely change who you are, how you think. Uh, we did a, a pilot kind of project with University of Cincinnati, uh, their undergrad business program. And all, I think there were 33 students, 16 of which came back as one of our profiles is called Explorer. And they're profiles that don't really demonstrate unique or differentiated traits. And so they're a very balanced profile and so yeah, more than half of the class came back as that. And that's something so many young people are classified as explorers. And I think that's you're learning and you don't really know how to behave, at least in a work business setting. And so I think you're still trying to create your own persona and so I do think up to a point and something we're not analyzing, we're building another kind of technical assessment, but we're not analyzing for IQ or aptitude or skills. That's something I think you can, I don't know if IQ is really, you start to get into some sensitive things there, but we're building a technical assessment. So if the com companies, software technical leaning, we definitely want to know that the team has the right skills uh, to scale and create a really good product. But yeah, I, but yes, definitely people can work on things. And if whoever wrote that, if you want to take the assessment, let me know and I'll, 
I can provide some coaching if, if necessary, or maybe you're just born to run a company. Right. Right. And it's also, you know, we think about it there. So the number one profile that based on all of our back testing for an early stage CEO is called a disruptor and hmm. they return capital to investors uh, 83% of the time. The yeah. average is 35, 36% for a founder. And so we're, we're not saying if you have this profile, you can't run a successful company. But what we're saying is we want to create a portfolio of CEOs that have a much higher likelihood of making money. And that's you know, how we think about it. We have to, we have investors, we have to return capital plus some. And so it's definitely not a binary, like yes or no. It's just, we're, we're trying to identify people with a higher likelihood of performing. Interesting. Uh, one additional question that came in, uh, as someone who looks at teams and culture a great deal, what would you encourage students to look for as they are vetting potential employers for a culture fit? That's a good question. I thought it was going to be when building out their own team. That's yeah, an easier one for me a, to answer. That was a big pivot there at the end. It's a yeah. good question. I, I mean, I would just use Glassdoor and all the publicly available data. You can get so much from just people's personal experiences and uh, generally companies that I don't love awards, but I've seen primarily if companies are focused on and applying for awards, they feel like they have a really good culture and they've gotten really good feedback from their employees. So I would look at lists of you know, top places to work and assuming, I guess it depends what kind of culture you want, but I would just use everything that's publicly available and you really won't know until the interview. I would use the, the hiring manager as a really good litmus test for the, the total company. Is based on what I've seen is employers they have a very small group of people that they let interview and make them a big part of the process. And generally those people are ones that live and demonstrate company culture uh, the most out of everyone. So I would use the full interview process as a really good litmus test for, for that. That's a great point. Uh, so one last question I had based on something you said earlier about how early on travel was your, your entrepreneurial journey, mm -hmm. um, sparked with what you were just talking about with the profile of the explorer. Um, and you know, that a lot of young people are literally explorers of these different <laughs> yeah. views around career and, but, but literally explorers in the world, uh, does the explorer type become relatively uncommon later on or uh, uh, later in life, or is it still as well represented as, as other types? It's thinking back to our wheel, we have a wheel breakout of you know, total population. I think Explorer is 15-ish percent. So it's a much smaller size. And we're, I'm just going off that one UC class, but I'd say you know, people under 25 are probably double probably close to 30% explorers. And uh, yeah, I would probably say double, but for an average population, it's somewhere around 15%. Interesting. Um, 
Well, I think for students who are tuning into this, it's a good reminder that, uh, you know, everything you've said about acquiring skill sets, doing things that are simply fun that may prove to be quirky skill sets that, you know, help you later on, mm -hmm. uh, embracing the explorer while you're in that stage and then uh, seeing kind of how you develop over time. Uh, any sort of parting words uh, that you would want to offer up to the uh, Emory community as an Emory alum uh, before we wrap up? Oh, I think that was probably you know, my, my best advice I could give is, is treat your 20s like uh, a playing ground for you know, professional skills and relationships. I, you know, everyone says opportunities come from your network and you know, that is, I think about it more, I'm on the entrepreneurial side that business opportunities come from networks and so even I'm always meeting people. Uh, I know my next, I want to be with Connect for a long time, but I guarantee you my next thing was from just interacting with entrepreneurs and people that I've gotten to know through venture capital. And so I would, yeah, just find out what you're passionate about and think about you know, ways to get involved in that space or meet people and yeah, just continue to, acquire unique skills and everything will work out. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, that's a great note to end on. So thank you so much for joining us, Chris. This was a fun conversation and I think it's going to be really interesting to uh, Emory student entrepreneurs and the innovators uh, who uh, reach out to the Hatchery often. So uh, hopefully we'll stay in touch. Uh, it would be great if at some point uh, once the world reopens, uh, we could get you down here for an event as well. So. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, and if anyone listening to this wants to uh, send me an email, a business idea, just take the assessment and get you know, candid feedback from me, I'm completely open to that. I think Shannon's going to include my contact uh, info uh, below the link or uh, on the internal site. So please, uh, I ask you to reach out to me. It's super fun, and uh, I'd love to meet some new people. Excellent. Okay. Well, thanks so much. This was a great way to kick off having alumni on the series. Uh, appreciate it and uh, good luck with everything. Yep. Thank you, Shane. All right. Take care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Emory Innovators. To hear additional episodes, search Emory Innovators on Spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast. For more information about the Hatchery, Emory University Center for Innovation, visit hatchery.emory.edu.